0: It's good to be with you guys this morning. If you would, please take your Bibles and open to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Trust you've had a good week, and I guess we're going back into some higher temperatures this week, which isn't as exciting to me as maybe it is to you, but we will hopefully be done with that part of this year soon. 1 Peter chapter 4, message I began last time, beginning in verse 12, running through verse 19, we read our text for us as we look back, hear what Peter has to say. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God be? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. As we get back into our text that we began last time, I found this statement regarding suffering by Robert Murray McShane to be most compelling. He said this, Some believers are very surprised when they are called to suffer. They thought that they would do some great thing for God, but all God permits them to do is to suffer. Just suppose you could speak with those who have gone before to be with the Lord Everyone has a different story, yet everyone has a tale of suffering. One was persecuted by family and friends. Another was inflicted with pain and disease, neglected by the world. Another was bereaved of children. Another had all these afflictions. But you will notice that though the water was deep, they all have reached the other side. Not one of them blames God for the road he led them on. Salvation is their only cry. Are there any of you, dear children, murmuring at your lot? Do not sin against God. This is the way God leads all his redeemed ones. It's true, isn't it? Suffering is the way that God leads all his redeemed ones. Why? For their good and for his glory. And we will see that as we continue to work through this text and the message that we began last time entitled, Suffer Well for Christ. This suffering in our text that we're talking about, that we're thinking through, is specifically linked to persecution. The believers that Peter was writing to were in the midst of the various stages of persecution. Some were being mocked and ridiculed by Family and friends, and others who were around them. Others were being slandered and reviled. Others were being mistreated violently at times, and some were even knocking at death's door. And so, Peter wants to encourage them to live in a way that pleases Christ in the midst of this difficulty. And in verses 12 through 19 of this text, he gives us three pastoral insights regarding suffering for Christ, which challenge believers to stand firm in the midst of distress. And last time you remember, we looked at the first insight there in verses 12 and 13, which was this, the right response to suffering. The right response to suffering. The right response believers are to have in the midst of uh, of suffering, you remember, has two aspects. Uh, the first was to, to not be surprised at the suffering, to not be shocked, to, to not become anxious and sinful as we consider the difficulty that we might find ourselves in. But rather, we are to continually rejoice, which was the second aspect. Uh, our joy in, as believers is grounded in the truth that, that God is sovereign and that, that He is good. And that one day, as His children, we will rejoice forever with our Lord when He comes to make all things right. And as we anticipate that eternal joy, when sin and suffering will be no more, and when Christ will crush His enemies beneath His feet, we are to fight for relentless joy now in the midst of the suffering that we encounter here. And as Peter pointed out, it is this joy, this joy in the suffering here, in the suffering now, that marks true, genuine believers. And it gives evidence that the future eternal joy awaits them. As he pointed out there at the end of verse 13, he said, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. You see, those living in anticipation of the eternal joy that they will experience in the presence of Christ are able to be motivated by that and compelled by that truth to live now, joyfully, regardless of the circumstances that they find themselves in regardless of the sufferings of this life, regardless of the persecutions that they may be called to endure. They fight for that joy because they know of the joy that lies ahead, and they are compelled by that truth. Well, this then leads us to a second pastoral insight that we find in our text this morning in verses 14 through 16, and it is this. It is the blessed road of suffering. The blessed road of suffering. Look again at verses 14 through 16. Peter says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome, troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. As we have seen in this letter from Peter before, and you have to go back to last semester when we were thinking through the various verses in the preceding chapters, but as we have seen from Peter before, there are two different roads in this book that he addresses which can lead to persecution or suffering in this life. And the first Path of suffering that Peter recaps now because he's kind of in that stage. He's, he's recapping what he's, he's said already and he's reminding these believers what he has said and he is doing that for the purpose of encouraging them in the midst of the suffering that they are now encountering. But the first path of suffering that Peter recaps here to, to continue to encourage these believers is, is the right path or the right road. This is the right road of suffering. This is, this is suffering on behalf of Christ. He said in verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. To be reviled is to be disgraced. It is to be humiliated. It is to be ashamed. It is to be demeaned. To be reviled is to have someone find fault with you when when there is no fault. It is to be mocked. It is to be ridiculed. It is to be vilified. And the specific reason these things are happening to believers in this text is because of their loyalty to Jesus Christ. As Peter says, for the name of Christ. That is to say, you are mocked, you are ridiculed, you are vilified for speaking on behalf of Christ. Or for living to Honor Christ or for speaking out against that which dishonors Christ. As you unashamedly live for Christ, those who hate Him will begin to mistreat you as if they were mistreating Christ. Wasn't it Paul who said that he rejoiced in that fact in Colossians 1 that he got to share in those sufferings of Christ? And that sharing is people who hate Christ are thinking of you in the same way. Paul rejoiced in that. This kind of mistreatment happens in your workplace. It can happen in your home. It can happen with your peers. It happens from higher levels of government when your biblical agenda stands in the way of their godless agenda. We're starting to see that unfold. But I want you to listen how this is playing out in other parts of the world. Right now, specifically, in large part, due to the COVID pandemic that unfolded the last handful of years. This report is from the the Guardian News site. The report says Christians in numerous countries in Africa and Asia have been refused COVID-related aid at times by government officials. But more often by village heads or committees. In Kaduna, Nigeria, families from several villages reported receiving one sixth of the rations allocated to Muslim families. These are professing Christian families that are receiving one sixth of the rations. In China, the government has increased surveillance with facial recognition systems installed in state approved churches in some areas, and online services are monitored. The government's campaign to cynicize, that means to bring under Chinese influence, to cynicize Christianity has meant crosses and other Christian imagery have been replaced with pictures by President Xi Jinping and the national flags and communist officials selecting church leaders, the report says. In India, the Hindu nationalist government has fostered a climate in which attacks and harassment of Christians and Muslims have, in, have increased. Foreign funding of Christian-run hospitals, schools, and church organizations has been blocked. Across sub-Saharan Africa, Christians have faced 30% higher levels of violence than last year at the hands of Islamic militant groups who took advantage of lockdowns and governments weakened by the crisis, the report says. In Nigeria, the number of Christians killed has nearly tripled to 3,800 recorded deaths. Governments all over the world created a setting in which to unleash their power to silence Christians and the gospel. We saw those attempts here in the U.S., but they were happening a hundredfold across our globe. And no doubt, this kind of mistreatment creates unwanted difficulty and pain in the believer's life. Anytime we're mistreated, whether it's through various afflictions or whether it's through actual persecution of some kind, anytime we're mistreated, it's unpleasant. It's unwanted. We don't desire difficulty to come into our lives. And we're not called to. That's a, that's, that's, that, that's a real problem. If you desire difficulty and those kinds of things, that's not what we're called to do. But we are called to endure it. We are called to encounter it. We are told that we are going to deal with it. And So that's why Peter started off in verses 12 and 13 and talked about how we are to respond to it. And so it creates this unwanted difficulty and pain in the believer's life. But, but notice Peter's encouragement there in verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are blessed. You are highly privileged and favored by God is what that word means. This is the blessed road of suffering, being thought of in the same way as the world thinks of Christ. The world associating you with Christ. So what is this blessing? What is this blessing? Well, it certainly points to the ramifications of eternal blessing. Being with Christ and being without suffering. We know that blessing awaits us. That is ahead of us when Christ returns and makes all things right. And takes his people home to be with him forever. We have that blessing to look forward to. And so we know that that is true as he says that those who are reviled for the name of Christ are blessed. We know that's the case. But that blessed state is also experienced in this life. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That phrase, spirit of glory and of God is is expressing the same idea. MacArthur states that divine glory defines God's nature. This is the spirit of glory, the spirit of the glory of God. God's divine glory rests on those who are reviled for Christ's sake. That's the blessing. This concept of rest conveys in a general sense that if you are a believer the Holy Spirit indwells you. That is, He is is with you. Friends, you and I as believers are the most blessed people on the planet, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Why? Because God is constantly with us. The Spirit of God indwells you. God is with you. In fact, we know from numerous texts in the Bible that his presence is forever with believers. Starting certainly in the Old Testament, Joshua 1.9, he said, For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God tells Joshua, listen, you're about to lead these people into the promised land. Moses is gone. You're the man. You're going to take care of this. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Don't be a coward. Why? Why? Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord your God is with you. I don't think we meditate on that reality enough as Christians. I don't think we sit down and chew on the truth that the divine one, the God of the universe, the independent one, The eternal one, the creating holy God of the universe, is with us, intimately. The spirit of God dwells in us. I mean, one of the reasons why that probably doesn't compel us as much as it should is can be looked at just in our experience as people, as believers who still struggle with sin so often as we do, right? I mean, to live, quorum deo, to live before the face of God is who we are. It's who we are as Christians, and we are indwelled by that God. That that should compel us in so many directions as believers and and should influence every decision we make and everything that we do. It it should make priorities not even a thing that have to be considered because we are going to prioritize everything that this God says we are to prioritize, right? Peter uses this truth to say that you don't need to be discouraged about the suffering you're encountering. You you don't need to be discouraged about the persecution that you're having to endure because the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. This concept of rest certainly relates that idea, that, that general concept of God indwelling believers. But it also conveys the idea of God granting relief or refreshment by His Spirit to those specific believers who are suffering on behalf of Christ. Relief and refreshment in the sense of grace to endure the suffering for however long it lasts. Strength to to get through and, and to endure whatever that suffering is in a godly, joyful manner. We see a clear example of this kind of rest when we look at the life of Stephen, the first deacon. You can turn there with me. The end of Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. Stephen was chosen in Acts chapter 6 as one of the first seven deacons. He was a man who was spoken of There, as full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And he found approval in the entire congregation there in, in Jerusalem. He was chosen by the apostles. Deacons were, were chosen to go take care of the problem that the, the widows were having, the Hellenist widows. They were called to go serve in a specific way, to do a specific task on behalf of the church to minister to these people so that the elders could keep to the word of God and to prayer the priorities that elders have in the church. Stephen was this man who was full of the Holy Spirit and he was was chosen to do this task. And so he was certainly a qualified man. And he was a preacher nonetheless. It says there... You look at the end of chapter 6, verse 15, Stephen's about to speak, and fixing their gaze on him, all were sitting in the council, saw his face like the face of an angel. Stephen's about to give an account concerning Christ, concerning the gospel. The high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he then goes through the Old Testament account, the Old Testament fathers, and gets to the point where he relates the gospel of Christ to these religious leaders. Then he works through... The various accounts there in the Old Testament, talking through Abraham and then through Moses, speaking about the tabernacle. He gets to verse 51, and then he turns to these men. He says, You men who are stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. He painted the picture of their rebellion, the rebellion of the children of Israel he said, you're just like them. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And so he turns to them and he indicts them on these counts. And now when they heard this, they weren't very happy. It says they were cut to the quick. interesting interesting language it's the same language that's used when Peter preaches I believe it's in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and like 3,000 souls are saved they were cut to the quick and, and that meant that they responded to the gospel the Holy Spirit had cut them to the quick here they were responded I mean they were cut to the quick in the sense that they were they knew exactly what Stephen was saying they felt the indictment that he was bringing upon them and They were angry. It wasn't a response of repentance and faith. It says they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit. And here is where it gets back to that concept of rest that I think Stephen illustrates so well. Gazed intently into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold... I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. God gave him a vision of Christ there as he is about to endure intense suffering to the point of death. And they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. They were really, really angry. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. The witnesses laid aside their robes at the young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen and he called out on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then Falling on his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Having this, he fell asleep. He died. So when Peter's talking about this, this rest, we see that played out in the life of Stephen, do we not? He preaches this message, this very convicting message to these religious leaders in Jerusalem. It angers them to the point where they take him outside the city and they they kill him. And as that process is unfolding, I don't know how you would be in that process, but it would probably be a bit terrifying to be being dragged out of the city, knowing that there's only one purpose that's happening and they're about to kill you. Then we're going to kill you inside the city. And it says that being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. He was being refreshed in that moment. He was was being rested upon in the sense that Peter is speaking of by God here in this text. He was given the strength to endure. You notice his demeanor at the end of chapter 7. He didn't get angry. He didn't begin reviling his persecutors. When they threw a stone at him, he didn't. I'm sure he was tied up, so he probably couldn't do it. But he didn't throw a stone back. Was it screaming at them? I said, Father, forgive them, just like Christ. Just like Christ did on the cross as he was hanging there about to give his last breath. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Just Stephen, in the same vein as our Lord, did the exact same thing. That's, that's this refreshment that Peter is speaking of saying you are blessed, you have the ability to endure whatever that suffering may be. Whether it's like Stephen and you're being dragged outside the city in stone, which that's not going to happen in our day most likely, but whether you're persecuted violently or even to the point of death, as many across our world are, whether you're reviled in the workplace or in your home, God, because you are being reviled for the sake of his son allows his glory to rest upon you, to endure it, to stay the course, to stay focused with your eyes fixed on Christ. That's what he's talking about. Strength to get through and to endure in a godly, joyful manner. Whether it is being slandered or treated with hostility or even... If it standing firm in your faith leads to death, the right road of suffering persecution comes with God's blessing. But notice there in verse 15, the contrast. As he commands believers not to suffer for wrongdoing and not to think that suffering for wrongdoing brings any kind of blessing from God. Look at verse 15. Just a direct contrast, make sure then that none of you suffers as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Believers are not to find joy in or expect blessing from suffering as a murderer, one who kills another for a non-justified reason, or a thief, one who steals stuff, or as an evildoer. That is just a, a criminal, various acts of rebellion. Or as a troublesome meddler. Now, this is someone who meddles in other people's affairs and suffers for not minding their own business. Just a side note here. It's interesting that he throws that in there. Because I think sometimes we start getting mixed up with people. All of a sudden we're suffering because of it. Don't create trouble that's not yours. Don't, don't get mixed up in business that's not yours. That's, that's what it means to be a troublesome meddler. We, we create sometimes our own suffering our own antagonism from others because we get mixed up in business that's not ours. It's just interesting that Peter throws that in there with murderer, thief, criminals, or a troublesome meddler. Don't create trouble that's not yours. If you do so and you suffer for it, don't consider yourself blessed, but consider yourself foolish and deserving whatever suffering you receive. There's a lesson to be learned in in its own right in that text, but... But what he's saying is suffering that is deserved is not what Peter is encouraging here. Again, Over and over, we hear illustrations of this kind of thing. But if you're driving down the highway, 90 miles an hour on the 114, the cop pulls out and pulls you over and gives you a big ticket, maybe takes your license. You don't go home and say, suffer for Christ. Count me worthy. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Nope. Nope, not what he's talking about. You go, and you're in another country, and you steal something, and you get your arm chopped off. Guess what? That's not a mark of suffering for Christ. That's a mark of being an idiot, right? You don't, you don't do that. You don't, you don't suffer for the things that you deserve to suffer for, which we, we all do stupid things that we deserve to suffer for. We don't take those and say that this is suffering for Christ, right? No, you can't use that. Don't mix those. Peter says, make sure that none of you suffers in this way. Don't do that. You're Christians. Don't suffer as evildoers suffer. And, And certainly if you end up having to suffer in that way, do not consider it to be being blessed by God. Suffering that is deserved is not suffering for Christ. Suffering for wrongdoing does not bring blessing. It only brings shame now, this is the road of suffering, Peter says, that you, you want to avoid and not find yourself on. You don't want to be any of these things. These are bad things. These are not to be given the same weight as suffering for Christ. As you look at verse 16, notice that Peter again creates another contrast. He, he reverts back to encouraging these believers on the right road of suffering immediately. Immediately. Make sure that none of you suffers as these things, verse 16. But another contrast, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he goes on to explain more blessing. He, he, he reverts back to encouraging these believers on the right road of suffering. He sandwiches this, this wrong road in between instruction concerning the right road for the purpose of emphasizing his point of encouragement. He doesn't want us to get stuck on verse 15. He's already talked about this. He's not looking to rehash the consequences for suffering wrongly as he did back in chapter 3. Rather, what he wants to do is stick that right in the middle here to focus, to help our focus to remain on the blessing that it is to suffer for Christ's sake. And so he just uses that as a contrast. Not this kind of suffering, but this kind of suffering. So he states it, then he contrasts it, then he goes back to what he previously stated. So in contrast... There in verse 16, he says, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. In contrast to suffering as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler, Peter says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. This contrast implies that to suffer for any of the reasons just listed, is never to be categorized as suffering as a Christian. It's interesting here. The term Christian used by Peter is the only the third time in the New Testament this word is used, and it's actually the final time in the New Testament this word is used. What he's saying is if anyone suffers as a, as a member of the Christ party, <laughs> you go to a restaurant and you have the last name of whoever you're with, party of We go with my family, like my whole extended family. It's a party of 30. And Ragsdale party of 30 or whoever it may be. He's saying if anyone suffers as a member of the Christ party, he's speaking of those who are marked by being close associates with Christ. He uses this term, Christian, to draw the specific connection of their suffering to being followers of Christ. Because, you know, he could use the word believer, which still tells us it's someone who is associated with Christ. But this term Christian, this, you know, some people have translated like little Christ. It's, it's more of the idea, more of the concept of this Christ follower, of being a member of this Christ party. We are with Christ. We are loyal to Christ. Where Christ goes, we go. So that's why Peter implies this term here because the suffering that he's talking about that that we are to receive blessing from, this this suffering he's going to talk about in verse 16 that we are not to be ashamed of, this kind of blessing is for those who are with Christ, loyal to Christ. He really wants to emphasize that point. According to the commentator Hebert, associating believers by the name Christian with our Lord, that is connecting them with the term Christ instead of the specific... His specific name, Jesus, he says this. It says it effectively differentiated the followers of this religious movement from the Jews as well as the pagans around them. Christ was the Messiah, right? It's the New Testament name for Messiah. It's the, delega- the, de- the designation, rather, of, of Christ. He was the Messiah. He is the Messiah, He is this one who has come. And so that term Christian differentiated these these actual followers of Christ from all of the other religious people. And that's what Peter wanted to point out here. And and it's interesting and and helpful, I think, for us to understand that. When, When we think about suffering for Christ, we are talking about suffering for Christ. We are not to lump ourselves in with all of these other religions in some way. That, oh, religious persecution. No, I mean, there are these good organizations who are, who are getting data on that stuff and stopping a lot of that stuff because persecution for any of those things isn't good. But, but when we think about suffering, we don't want to lump ourselves in with this world of religious persecution when, in fact, it's, we're suffering because we follow Christ. Follow Christ. We are associated with Christ. And he says there in verse 16 that they are not to be ashamed. A Christian is not to be ashamed of their connection to Christ like one who is caught doing the things mentioned in verse 15. Those people need to be ashamed. And so if you get caught doing those things, you should be ashamed. If you get caught breaking any kind of laws and those kinds of things, you should be ashamed. Your suffering is deserved. But he's saying In contrast to that, those who suffer as a Christian are not to be ashamed in that same way. Now, why does he say it like that? Well, to be a Christian in Peter's day, as it is becoming in our day, it was considered evil by those who approached Christ and his message. You think of the Apostle Paul, right? When he was persecuting Christians, why was he doing that? because he was zealous for God. He just had a misunderstanding of God. He wasn't worshiping the right God. He, he was zealous in his religion. And so when he looked at this group, this, this total countercultural group at that time who, who stepped away from this, all this Jewish system of religion, and now they were following this person, Jesus? Jesus? For them, they were like, no, this is evil. This is wrong. You're, you're walking away from the God of the Old Testament. That's how they felt. That's how they operated. And so they considered Christians, these Christ followers, to be evil. And that's why, that's why Peter says it like this. That's why he says they aren't to be ashamed. In the same way that those other real evil actions of verse 15 make a person ashamed because the people of that day, the religious people, were considering being a Christian the same as being a murderer, the same as being a thief, the same as being a, an evildoer, those kinds of things. And Peter says, no, no, no you don't need to be ashamed about that. These were the same people that were bringing persecution upon these believers. Peter says, Christians are not to be ashamed if they are accused of following Christ and thus designated as evil. It would be ashamed because it would be easy to do that. If you're persecuted, you can find shame in those things. He says, don't. They have nothing to be ashamed of. So whenever the opportunity comes for us to receive any kind of persecution, we, we are never to be ashamed Why? Well, consider who Christ is. Christ is the glorious king of the universe who will rule the world with perfect righteousness and justice. That's who we're associating ourselves with. We're not associating ourselves with any person on this planet who is temporal. Even if they hold the highest position in the world, that Temporary position is going to eventually go away. No, we are associating ourselves. We are being loyal to the eternal king. Why would we ever be ashamed of that? Why would we ever be ashamed of that in front of our peers and in front of those people who mock us? Everything they're worshiping, the foundation of their lives is temporal, temporal. And is going to be judged and dealt with and done away with and will never last. The person that you worship, the person that you're loyal to, that you're associated with, that they're mocking you because you're associated with, he's the eternal king of the universe who suffered in your stead, in your place, taking your sin upon you, upon himself on the cross. That's who you are associating yourself with. That's who you are following. Why in the world would we ever be ashamed of him? Peter says, don't be ashamed. Though he is the enemy of our culture, he is our closest friend. And he is the reigning, sovereign Lord of this universe. Friends, never be ashamed of Christ. Never be ashamed of Christ. Christian, though you and I may be mistreated, may be treated like troublemakers in our society, we are not to back away in cowardice from our loyalty to Christ in the midst of persecution. Notice Peter says believers are not to be ashamed, but rather they are to glorify a God in this name. Instead of cowardice and shame, friends, you and I who are in Christ are to praise God that we are privileged to bear the name of Christ and that we are privileged to be counted worthy to suffer for that name. We place a lot of stock in names, don't we? And we always have. Names mean something. They are chosen with careful thought and precision for the most part. I say for the most part because some names that are given you you have questions about. And you wonder what kind of thinking went into that. I won't tell you how we came up with the names of our children. but We probably could have given a little more thinking, but we love their names. But but for the most part, when a name is given to a person, it means something. And as much as it means something in our day, it meant much more, much more in the culture that that Peter was ministering to in that day. It was their whole identity was wrapped up in the name that they had. This is why to shame the family name in, in many cultures has dire consequences In places like Asia and India, especially people coming out of like Muslim homes and those kinds of things. You hear of stories of people coming to Christ out of those homes. And they're considered to have shamed the family name and they are removed from that family. We place a lot of stock in names. We value names. You are proud in some way, maybe not. A lot of way, but in some way you are proud of the family name that you bear. It's how you're known. I like to ask a person their first name, but I also like to ask a person their last name. That's how they are associated. I'm trying to think if I know the family in some way. Because that's how we think. This, this name, it gives you a sense of security and and Belonging. You belong to this family. Christian, there is no other name that you bear or are associated with or could ever be associated with that even compares to bearing the name of Christ as one of his followers. You realize that? And in the face of persecution, You are to glorify God as you endure it by wearing the name of Christ as a badge of honor. To suffer for Christ's sake, bearing his name, is to walk down the right road of suffering. Next time we will consider the the third pastoral insight we find in this text in verses 17 through 19. But as we close this morning, I simply want you to ponder this this question. As aspects of persecution arise in your life or as you deal with various degrees of suffering that are not self-imposed, so not a speeding ticket or jail time or anything like that, the question is this, are you ashamed to bear the name of Christ or do you wear his name like a badge of honor? Are you ashamed to bear the name of Christ or do you wear his name like a badge of honor? How would your friends and your family answer this question on your behalf? Those people closest to you, would they verify if you said, yep, I wear the name of Christ like a, like a badge of honor? I'm a follower of his, people know that. I'm associated with him. I'll bear whatever, whatever comes because of him. Or would they say, meh, maybe not? It's an interesting question, I think. Is Christ more glorious to you and thus far outweigh any difficulty that this life brings, including suffering for his sake? Do you see Christ for who he is? Do you dwell on the person of Jesus Christ? Do you worship him for who he is? Is the great God-man, the eternal God-man who came and lived a perfect, righteous life and died sacrificial death on behalf of all those who would come to him. And he rose again. He's reigning victoriously in heaven. And he's waiting for his father to say, Go, to return to this world, to establish his kingdom of righteousness. I mean, do you dwell on the person of Christ, his goodness, his faithfulness, his kindness? Do Do you get into the gospels and read about the fact that this is a compassionate and gracious God who loves you, who cares about everything that's going on in your life to the point that he knows every hair that's on your head and falls from it? Do you gaze upon the gloriousness of the person of Christ? Because I'm telling you, if you do, if you meditate on the person of Christ, it will, it will far outweigh any difficulty this life brings. Do you treasure him? Are your sights fixed upon him? If so, be encouraged. You are blessed. And God will refresh your soul and he will glorify himself through you as as you endure the sufferings in this life. If not, then repent. Repent. If you can't answer that question, say, yeah, I wear the the name of Christ like a badge of honor. And ask God to give you greater clarity regarding the gloriousness of his Son, the Lord Jesus, so that the sufferings of this life will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what you want, isn't it? You want to see Christ for who he is. You want to rejoice in the fact that you're going to be with him. You want the sufferings of this life, as difficult as they may be, to just continue to fade away because you are fixated upon the Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of this text. Father, may we be counted blessed. May we suffer on account of Christ, not because of our own stupidity, Father, may we not ever be ashamed regardless of whether or not we're persecuted. May we not ever be ashamed of the name of Christ. May we boldly proclaim with our lives and with our words, with our priorities that we belong to Jesus. We are Christians. We follow Christ and then encounter whatever may come because we know whatever that is is nothing in comparison to the glory that we will receive when we will be with Christ forever. Thank you for your goodness. Encourage our hearts, Lord. Exhort us. Rebuke us where we need to be rebuked for your glory and the sake of your son. Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.